Harriet Tubman said my people are free in the middle of slavery. I'm saying that, we're saying that together, we have access to more than just the power of our individual lives, more than just the power of what um, linear facts we think have made up our day. We actually have access to incredible power and power that people have used to do things that are miraculous. I'm Autumn Brown. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. In today's episode, we are so excited. So excited. So excited to bring to you a conversation with our... Uh, amazing comrade, um, our inspirational thought leader, Alexis Pauline Gums. Alexis is um, a, uh, a prolific writer, um, an inspirational collage artist, a lover, a thinker. She is one of the um, black feminist thinkers that I look to most to guide my own thinking, my own process. Um, she has, and yeah, Adrian, that you too. And she has, <laughs> she has written so many, uh, so much, but we wanted to highlight a little bit of the work that she's done just to, by way of introducing her, um, her latest publication, um, spill scenes from black feminist fugitivity, um, just came out this last year. It's a collection of, um, prose and poetry that is just astounding. Um, she's also the co-editor of Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, which is an anthology of uh, writing from mothers who are mothering on the margins of society. Um, and you're in that. and Yes, and I have an essay that's published in that anthology. Um, mm -hmm. And um, she also has a book forthcoming from Duke University Press called M Archive at the End of the World. Um, we'll tell you more about that uh, later in the episode. Um, and among many, many, many projects that she has been the creatrix of, um, she's the creator of the Black Feminist Breathing Chorus, the Mobile Homecoming Project. Uh, she's just, she's so much. She's done so much. And I've gotten to collaborate with Alexis many times. She's, of course, in Octavia's Brood and was one of the first people we thought of that had to be in there. Um, and then she and I actually worked together on um, editing the Octavia Butler Sci-Fi and Social Justice Reader, which was kind of way back at the beginning of pulling these threads together. Um, and we also worked on the Transformative Justice and Science Fiction Reader, which we uh, co-edited with Jenna Peters-Golden and Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha. And Alexis is in the Reflections on Octavia Butler's Earthseed Reader, which was basically, when I was 33, I realized that there were 33 Earthseed verses. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, okay. let's do this. I think it was that. I think it was 33 or 35 or something. Um, but one of those years, I was like, hey, there's this many Earthseed verses, and we should do a reader. And so the Octavia quote I want to uplift today is the one that Alexis chose to respond to. Um, and I want to read you the quote, and then I want to also share with you what she responded. So the Earthseed verse is, to get along with God, consider the consequences of your behavior. Mm. 
uh-huh <laughs> right <I'm> okay like, <laughs> and then okay <laughs> i don't think about it and then alexis turns around and says we are the transformation that insurance algorithms cannot anticipate the ongoing exception we offer everyday mundane acts of god god moves through us change moves through us into practice touching everyone Every action is divine. Every mistake is divine. When I think of myself as God, a force for change in my own life, or when I think of each of you as God because you have changed my life, the smallest actions shine with significance. Our community is full of a pantheon of gorgeous, messy gods changing my life and changing everything all the time. And I myself have been both a wrathful and a benevolent God. Mm. Mm, mm. This is one one of the things I love about Alexis's writing is like the powerful turn of the you when she suddenly turns to the reader and you're not ever expecting her to turn to you. And then there you are right under her gaze. Um, Exactly. We are going to take you into the conversation that we had with Alexis. One of the things that we wanted to warn you about as we go into this conversation is that um, the recording um, of this conversation is actually lower quality than many of our other recordings have been basically because we're still learning how to do this and we're newbies. (laughs) Um, But we loved this conversation so much that we decided um, to go forward with it, even though the quality is not the best. And we believe that you, our listeners, um, will totally enjoy the conversation, even through some of the strange distortions that you might hear. Um, So let's take a listen. So the first question that we wanted to ask you, Alexis, is what did Black feminists have to teach us about how to survive the end of the world? Oh, everything. <laughs> I'm very biased yeah. about this because I, I feel like Black feminists have to teach us the answer to every question that our species can possibly create. But I, um, I believe so much in Black feminism because I actually think that it is the one thing that if we were to get it as a species, like really get how interrelated we are and how complicated we are and how we get to be all of who we are, we don't have to give any of those pieces away. That would be the thing. Like that if our if our species mm. could actually continue to exist on this planet, I think it would come out of those lessons. You know, how to not choose to be either one thing or another thing, which I think is a black feminist lesson. How to um really look at how harm works and the the multiplicity of it, how to be inventive and incorporate pleasure and critique and creativity into the same moments. You know, those are the things that black feminism has taught me. And Mm. I think that in a way, you know, my world has ended, right? In many moments, black feminism all black feminist organizations had by the time at least I was born had basically like fallen apart. So the world has ended for black feminists and yet there are still black feminists, right? Black feminism has survived. So I think that there's, um, yeah, I, I, I think that there's no piece of what it would take for us to live beyond the system that we have that I wouldn't turn to black feminism for. Mm. 
I love that. And it makes me want to ask you, like, um, if you were to say in a nutshell, this is what black feminism is to me, like, it sounds like, you know, there's intersectionality in there, there's pleasure in there, there's um, resilience and transformative justice and, and other things that I'm hearing come through. But do you have like a, you know, if you're like, what's the, for, for our, I can't know, I don't know who's going to be listening to our okay. show, who wouldn't know, but there might be someone who doesn't know. How would you break it down to them? Yeah, I would say black feminism is a rigorous love practice that um, hmm. is, is profoundly inclusive and um, hmm. the way that I think about it, I think about the Kambahi River Collective Statement, which was written in 1977 as a a core document for how I think about black feminism. And they said that if black women were free, everyone else would have to be free because our freedom requires the destruction of all systems of oppression. To me, that's, that's what black mm -hmm. feminism is. It, it says, okay, if we love black women, understanding that there's a black woman somewhere facing all different forms of oppression, then we know that the logical endpoint of loving ourselves and of loving black women means we have to dismantle everything that's not loving to people. And mm. I think I, for me, it goes beyond that, even to beyond our species, beyond, um, beyond the life forms that we even recognize at this point, but it radiates. So, so it's a rigorous yeah. love practice and it's, it radiates. Mm. I'm wondering, I want to ask a follow-up as well. Um, Earlier, you were saying that, you know, by the time that we were being born, um, all of these, all of the collectives and organizations that black feminists founded, particularly in the mid and late 1970s, were already coming apart or in the process of sunsetting. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that coming apart has impacted the way we have received black feminism mm -hmm. as a concept. Um, I know that one of the reasons why I raise this is I think one of the things that I witness a lot is um, reception of black feminist ideas without any honoring of where those <laughs> ideas come from. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much that Say has that. to do yeah. with that. But I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on it because I feel like I could also be really way off base about why that is mm. and whether that's even a, necessarily a negative thing. Okay, so I'll say three things. I think, I think that um, people not giving black women credit for the work that they do is just, is, <laughs> is all around us. It's, um, you know, the basis of slavery. It's, it's something that happens over and over and over again. Um, so I think, I think it transcends that specific history of what happened with those organizations. But at the same time, those organizations um, really had a major strategy of writing about black feminism. So a lot of the folks who mm -hmm. were parts of those collectives, I mean, I mentioned the Kabahi River Collective, they explicitly say in their statement, because they're involved in writing and publishing, that's going to be a major focus of how they move the concept forward of black feminism. And it worked, you know, like the reason that I know what the Kambahi River Collective statement says, even though I don't have the opportunity to be part of the Kambahi River Collective because it doesn't exist as an organization in that form anymore, is because Barbara Smith, Demita Frazier, Beverly Smith, they were like every 
publication, whether it's going to exist for three months or whether it's, you know, an anthology, we're going to publish a statement over and over and over and over again. And they and they talked about this strategy specifically. They said, we don't know if, if our work is going to be archived. We don't know how long our movement is going to survive. We don't know if we're going to survive. They were doing this work in Boston in the midst of the, the Boston murders of 12 women in three months, 12 black women in three months, right? Mm. And they said, wow. we must document ourselves now. There is no guarantee that our movement will ever be safely historical or that we or our movement will survive. So they they were thinking in the terms that you all are thinking. They were thinking in apocalyptic terms at that point. And they yeah. were like, well, what's our time capsule? You know, like what, like if we believe that we've been transformed by reaching back to Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and thinking about Ida B. Wells, the way that they um, reached back to the history that they needed as black feminists, who's going to be reaching back for us and how are they going to find us? Mm. They thought that putting, putting the work in print was their best bet and it was a pretty good bet. Now, I think that that still shapes the way that black feminism is received. Mm. And so that means it's, yeah. it's very different for me to now I'm, I'm so blessed that I've met Barbara Smith and I'm, I'm so happy to be in relationship with her because she, um, has saved my life in so many ways before she even knew she was saving my life and before I even had a life, like before I was born. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but yeah. it's very different to learn about a concept from reading about it than it is to learn about a concept for, by seeing it embodied by people that you know, right? And mm -hmm. I, I think that those are, those are very different things. So if the Kambahi River Collective existed, um, that, would be a, that would be a completely different experience. And then the other thing I'll mention is Akasha Hull writes about this in um, Soul Talk, which Adrian knows I, bas I basically recommend every week. I recommend for people to read this book. I'm recommending it right now. Soul Talk is... <laughs> I just did... I have to tell you, Alexis, I did a um, a training like on Black feminism, the one I'd reached out to you about oh, for yeah. the Black August um, practice group. And I had to recommend that book to everyone because... I feel like it comes up in my life at least once a week since you recommended it to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always telling people, I'm like, and then Lucille Clifton was waking up early in the morning because slaves were talking to her. <laughs> people are like, what? I'm like, yes, you need to read this book so you can get in alignment with whoever's trying yes. to talk to you. <laughs> and Alexis says Oh, so. I definitely approve this message. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so one of the things that Akasha Hall says in Soul Talk is she talks about well, what happened, right? What happened as these organizations were created, they were, they were coming out of left movements, they were um, coming out of black power and civil rights movements, and they were in the streets, and they were organizing, um, and, and the um, violence, you know, the violence of 1979, the violence of, um, which feels similar to the violence of right now, right? So we're here in Durham, North Carolina, in Greensboro, there was clan clan murders of um, racial justice protesters. Mm. In 1979, in Greensboro, there were the Atlanta child murders. There were the the, the murders in Boston that I just mentioned of 12 black women um, at that same time. And then, on top of that, Reagan is elected and specifically demonizes mothers of color in his campaign mm -hmm. strategy and wins, right? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was incredibly hurtful. And Akasha Hull writes about it as somebody who lived during that time and organized during that time. And what she says is that was something 
that let black feminists know that they had to go much deeper with their work, that they couldn't just keep responding to everything that was happening because it was it was literally killing them. What they had to do was mm -hmm. they had to do spiritual work. They had to listen on another level. They had to be more intergenerational. They had to um, create practices that weren't that were generative and not only responsive. Um, and they also had to think about that sustainability beyond the terms that um, that leftist organizations could measure at that time. They had to think about their work in different terms, and that's. Um, it's an incredible insight, you know, and, and she's, she's basically historicizing the time period that we were born is when this shift took place, right? So, like, we were actually born yeah. in that energy of black feminists saying, you know what? The transformation we need in this world is not going to be linear. It's actually going to be beyond our lifetimes, and it actually is connected way before our lifetimes, and we are grounding in a power that is not similar to the power that we've seen before. You know, we're, we're going to believe in that yeah. and we're going to reach beyond, you know, what we can, um, what we can see directly in front of us in the streets. And we trust that that energy is going to come back. And we were born in that trust, you know, so, right. so, yeah, I mean, I think about that every, every day or in response to you know? that trust. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. so I feel very accountable to that because, I, I feel like we, we are the answer to the question that an earlier generation of black feminists were asking about what do we do at the end of the world? <laughs> we give birth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we, we create, yeah, we create a context and we believe in a generation that, you know, and then we generate humans from mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think the one of the questions I had for you was about your nonlinear concept of time mm. and how I feel like that flows through so much of your work. Like, I feel like, especially recently reading Spill and just feeling like, oh, you're just dropping me in. And the piece that you have in Octavia's Brutus, like you're dropping me in and letting me flow forward and backward throughout time. And I was wondering if you have rituals or if in your work, if this is a place where you feel very intentional, um, like how do you bring past and future to bear on the current moment, given that nonlinearity? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, I definitely don't have a linear sense of time, which is very evident um, in, in every area of my life. Um, <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> um, even this very interview. Um but, yeah, I, I think that the definition of being present that I have and that has always felt right to me, like I, I, remember, I remember being in high school and being like, what does it mean to be in the present moment? And for me, it really was, if I'm present, everyone is here. Like, if I'm present, I have access to everyone and every moment that's ever existed. I don't know which one of those moments I'm going to need to connect to in order to be fully present to this moment, but... I know that I have to be open to the fact that there's a simultaneity of time, you know, like that there, there is, um, it, it's not, it's not linear in the sense that I cannot be separated from that love that has generated me, you know, mm. I, I'm connected to that. And 
Wow. That, that's what has generated me and also what's being generated, you know, and, and that also exists across space, right? So sometimes when I've like written bios and been like, I'm a time traveler and space cadet, I think that I think about time and space in very similar ways. And it's, um, it's just because, you know, and this is something that Maya, Maya Williams, one of the co-editors on Revolutionary Mothering reminds me of because she does like long distance Reiki practice for survivors from wherever she is in the world and she's like yeah you know Hmm. energy is not bound by time or space Mm. and it's so simple and I feel like we've all heard that many times but if I'm really making decisions in my life based on that then it means that because love is energy and love is the defining energy of my life that I'm not separate from anyone that I love and black feminism is this radiant practice of loving beyond, beyond, beyond loving across difference, being transformed by love, which means, yeah, everyone's here and we're everywhere. Mm. Right. And the idea that I'm also not separate from myself at a different point in time. Mm -hmm. I remember, I feel like revolutionary mothering, the process of that anthology coming into being taught me that, right. I, you remember that when we did one of our first public events, are re- doing readings from that anthology, it was so intense for me to read my piece aloud that I had written seven years before mm-hmm. and to feel very strongly that I would never write that piece now, but I needed to hear it. I needed to read it. I needed, I needed to hear from myself in the past mm-hmm. because she had something to teach me that I needed to relearn. Mm-hmm. And and I feel that very strongly throughout that entire anthology, the way y'all structured that anthology really made it feel like um, like many time capsules in one book, which was really powerful. Mm-hmm. I have another question. Is that okay, Adrian, or did you want to? I mean, we're basically both chomping at the same yeah. bit here. So, yes. <laughs> like, yes. Alexis, you, you better get in there. Um, <laughs> because, but it's fine. Alexis because is it's the not linear. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> um, so, you were referencing, um, you know, the fact that black feminists writing in the late 70s and early 80s we're really connecting to these earlier lineages, the work of Harriet Tubman, the work of Sojourner Truth. And another one of the threads that we wanted to pull around your work is this concept of practicing fugitivity. Mm. Um, And I'm wondering, one, if you could really define what you mean when you say fugitivity, Mm -hmm. um, how you understand that thread interconnecting all of us across time, all black feminists, all black women, mm-hmm. um, and also what it has to do with surviving another end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that really when I use the term fugitivity, I, the other way I would say it is like Harriet Tubman-ness, you know, like, like I, think, <laughs> I think of Harriet Tubman as like the <laughs> definitive, um, example of fugitivity that inspires me and it's um it it means that fugitivity is 
as nuanced like as a person is, you know, as as Harriet Tubman was, for example. And so Harriet Tubman was fugitive in the sense that she was, you know, in flight, that she was living an existence that was explicitly and implicitly illegal. Um, she was she was she believed in her freedom more than she believed in the structures that were incompatible with her freedom. Mm. And she, <laughs> she believed in her freedom. I love and that. And she, um, she acted accordingly. And she invited other folks into that, um, into that practice of, of freedom. And so to me, fugitivity is not only the flight, like fugitive flight away and being hunted and chased, which which was the case for Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. It's also the practice of creating. I don't know what you mean by Siri. I am distracted by another person. <laughs> 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 Hold on one second. Hold on. We're gonna pause. Let's search for it. That's amazing. What? That's so good. I really love that um, um, Siri intervened on us. That? Siri. Siri started speaking to oh. us, I think, from Alexis's phone. Like, it had made a few of its own, like, dinging noises and then decided to start talking. <laughs> Siri was like... Siri like, was I like, did you say fugitivity? Because I hide in everybody's phone. Right. <laughs> Siri was like, did you say hunted and tracked? Right, we're tracking you right now. Okay, Siri. So not only was Harriet Tubman in flight and chased and hunted, um, which, which is an important definition of fugitivity. And I, th I think academically circulates as probably the dominant definition of fugitivity. She also was in the practice of creating communities of refuge mm. and actual life sustaining. I mean, Harriet Tubman was a person who was an herbalist. She was a person who, um, like baked incredible pies, you know, like she, she was doing all baked of these pie? things. Yeah. And she like helped, um, the women who stole themselves, freed themselves from the, um, rice plantations in South Carolina to start their own businesses. Like she, she was generating what, what is the life and what are the communities in alignment with the freedom that I believe in? Right. And, and, and that was a cosmic belief, you know, like for her, that was a belief that was, absolutely a spiritual belief and it was because she she believed that she was connected forwards and backwards to forms of freedom that the current structure within which slavery existed was not compatible with but that structure was not was more temporary than what she knew right and so that's fugitivity. Like to to me, if if, if I'm thinking about, I'm I'm not saying that Harriet Tubman was the only person like that either. Obviously, there were many people like that, and that's why we exist, and that's why slavery ended, you know, in the form in the form that right, it existed at right. that time. But I think that to simplify, you know, it's it is Harriet Tubman ness. It it is the practice of um, refusal of enslavement and it is also the practice of generating a community beyond ownership a community that's mm -hmm. actually based on the care it takes to be free mm. yeah mm. so beautiful and 
I have to um, ask you to speak a little bit about the Black Women's Breathing Chorus, Black Feminist Breathing Chorus. Um, I want to share with people, um, a few years ago, um, I was facilitating the Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity um, gathering, and we invited Alexis to come in um, and visit with us and lead us in some breathing. And she shared... Um, chants with us, Black feminist um, words that we chanted together. And I was in the group that got Harriet Tubman's chant, Harriet Tubman's words, my people are free. And we chanted those words. And I think if someone had told me like a moment beforehand, like you're about to time travel and just get ready. um, You know, I think I would have been like, okay, cool. Like that could happen. But I don't know if I would have I and still to this day I'm like oh what happened there like it really felt like a transport transporting into a different time place and understanding of how reality works and I feel like you do that regularly um through this black feminist breathing practice so can you tell us a little bit about how you knew to focus on breath and um how do we need to breathe right now Mm, what a beautiful question um I think that how I knew to focus on breath is, um, I love that question. I'm obviously not the first person <laughs> to, to focus on breath. We've all, we're all breathing. Uh, we're all trying to breathe. I think mm-hmm. that I would want to, I want to lift up and Tazaki Shange who writes about combat breathing. Franz Fanon writes about combat breathing and Lori Carlos who, um, uh-huh. really, um, really created a breathing practice and focus on a breathing practice and actually needed to focus on a breathing practice for her own health um, and collaborated with dancers and makers of theater around the country and around the world to use breath as a way to see how present a person could be in the moment, like how present could somebody be um, in order to be able to improvise, which just means to be able to make a decision right in this present moment informed by informed by all other moments but really breathing into this moment and so I I, um didn't even know that about Lori Carlos actually when I created the Black Feminist Breathing Project but I was like oh she created this project like I I just um (laughs) I I feel such alignment Uh, and uh love and because it's a time travel project it doesn't matter that I didn't know that before because I know it now (laughs) can you define combat breathing for us yeah absolutely so um so Frantz Fanon, who was a um, black psychoanalyst, Afro-Caribbean psychoanalyst, wrote about combat breathing. He had um, done psychiatric work with Algerian um, revolutionaries, like people who were reclaiming Algeria and kicking the French out. And he talks about a certain form of breathing that... Um, was associated with the fact that they were freedom fighters. And so Entezaki Shange um, also studied Frantz Fanon and was collaborating also with Lori Carlos to create performance and was really thinking about what is the form of breathing. Entezaki Shange's work specifically confronts and responds to violence against black women. And so what, what are the forms of breathing that um, make that survival possible? And... Yeah, combat breathing. I wouldn't say that combat breathing is necessarily 
what black feminist breathing is, I would say that it is, um, it is maybe noticing that I was in a mode of combat breathing, um, reactive breathing, breathing that was shaped uh-huh. by uh-huh. violence that I was experiencing or afraid to experience. And knowing that I actually had a desire for my breathing to be in chorus with everyone who's ever loved black women, who everyone who's ever decided mm. that the freedom of black women could be palpable and possible. I wanted to be breathing in chorus. And I knew that that would be how I could breathe beyond just responding to violence or the violence that you know has, has shaped my experience. That was how I could have access to Harriet Tubman said, my people are free in the middle of slavery. And I can have access to that moment. Yeah. She said that. I'm saying that. We're saying that together. Mm-hmm. We have access to more than just the power of um, our individual lives, more than just the power of yeah. what um, linear facts we think have made up our day. We actually have access to incredible power and power that people have used to do things that are miraculous. I mean, Harriet Tubman is only one of, you know, more than 20 folks who we, t- we draw on in, in black feminist breathing when we, when we call them into our bodies. But, um, it's, it's, but it is that calling it into the body. I, you know, like when I think back, it was a life changing experience for me. And I think we, it was maybe 15 minutes or something of actual breathing together, maybe. But when I look back, I'm like, oh, I felt, no, not, I knew with my whole, with every cell in my body, I knew that what I was saying was true. Mm -hmm. Like I knew all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, like, oh, our freedom is not contingent on anything that I can measure around me. It's deeper than that. And it's changed my organizing. And I, you know, I think, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm like, is that the normal experience? Is that what you're running around doing to everyone? <laughs> I mean, ideally, <laughs> ideally, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's what I know that I need. Right. So, so in, in terms right. of black feminist breathing for me started as a daily practice, I didn't necessarily know I was going to share it with people. Um, uh-huh. it, it changed my life. And it was, um, it was incredible, you know, to feel accompanied, to be able to really feel like I was replacing in my body on a a physiological level, the pre-existing physiological impact of negative messages and internalized oppressive messages that, um, that were in my body, you know, like to, to, to feel that I was actually replacing, breathing in these messages, that clarity of Harriet Tubman, the clarity of the Kambahi River Collective, the clarity of Audre Lorde into my body was um, something I did to reclaim my, reclaim my time. Yes. <laughs> to reclaim my Reclaiming time. Reclaiming my yes. time. Yes. <laughs> all, all of it. Reclaiming it my time. It comes back to Maxine Waters. Yes. Um, Always. But, it, but for real, you know, like I was just, in a workaholic mode and what what would it mean to really believe in the nonlinearity of time what I was doing was I was like filling every second of the day with things that I that I feel and felt were urgent and important because I felt scarcity around time you know 
And like I said, black feminists have felt scarcity around time for a long time, right? Before I was born, they were saying, we don't know if we're going to survive, so we have to. Mm -hmm. And, And there's something about, like, what if our response to the end of the world, how can there be an end of the world if there's no linearity of time? Mm-hmm. Say yeah. it again. <laughs> I mean that that's that's it, you know, like that it's it's um it's expansive. And so with black feminist breathing, I found that when I did start to share it with people, it was like, oh, this is much better. You know, like this is like for us to be actually saying this in chorus is um even more powerful than me just sitting here saying it hundreds of times to myself by myself, which um <laughs> which is what it was before. Um yeah, and it's it, it is time travel, as you said, Adrian, and it also is um, it is it's a way to make physical and audible what I think is the case all the time. You know, like that energy is but once once Harriet Tubman said what she said and did what she did. That vibration exists. Mm. It can never be undone. Right. It can never be taken away, you know, which means that we have access to it yeah. in some way. Yeah. And so it's... It, and to the dreams that led for her to know Exactly. That, right? Because I think that's one of the things I'm like, oh, there's some dreams maybe that are private or that get lost or that are random. And then there's some dreams that you wake up and you can't forget and you turn into the phrase or the book or the poem mm-hmm. or the podcast or, you know, something that is like, okay, this, I need to, to bring this dream out further into the world. And just think you're so great at doing oh, that. Oh, as work. are you. I mean, you've done that, right? You've created songs for our whole movement, you know, out of your dreams and, you know, waking up and trusting the knowledge that you wake up with. I mean, I, I think that that's, um, that's incredible. And, and those are technologies, speaking of like technologies to face the end of the world is, yeah, those yeah. those are technologies that we need in order to remember what is already the case. You know, that that's what the song does. It brings us into alignment with that vibration. That's what the chant does. Absolutely. Um, so you were just saying that once Harriet Tubman said that that vibration was in the world. And and that's as true of the suffering she experienced. Mm-hmm. Um And one of the things I think we've been trying to delve into in this podcast is um, how we're navigating the grief and suffering that we are experiencing currently, knowing that we're also in the grief and suffering of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And one of the last times that you and I were together, you were telling me about this work you were doing around sound and ocean or writing, I think you were doing, around sound and ocean and the fact that, you know, sound stays in water for an incredibly long time, meaning that there are still sounds in the water from 400 years ago. Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that work, that writing, that thinking, and, and how you sort of, how you hold the, the space around understanding that those um the power of claiming freedom and the suffering of not being free are both vibrations that we're Mm -hmm. experiencing Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely 
Yeah, I think I think there's this question of tuning in. So so I yeah I listen to ocean sounds. I listen to whales like all the time. Um, so that that's um, what I listen to while I meditate. I am I'm really drawn to those sounds, but the, but there's something um, there's something about those sounds that helps tune me into a vibration beyond linear time. So I, I think that, that that's what attracts me to, to listening to those sounds and then to just being near the ocean mm-hmm. and, you know, listening to, listening to the sound of that or listening to the sound of my breathing, us breathing. That's all the same sound. Um, it's just, it's just about access to it. I think that there's something about the existence of, the pain that has been experienced in multiple generations, that's really important to, um, to honor and to think about. I mean, really right now I'm thinking about my dad who passed mm-hmm. away um, this past October and mm-hmm. I'm definitely in grief. You know, like I'm, I miss him so much. I'm, I cry every day. You know, like that. it's, it's not. I'm so sad. Yeah, and it, and it's um, it's an honor to love someone that much, you know, and it's an honor to be loved so much, you know, that like that that yes. missing and loss of physical presence is as palpable and transformative as it is, you know, and it is absolutely transforming me, and it's a um, it's it's a blessing, and it hurts, you know, like that's that's a that's a reality mm-hmm. of it, and I'm thinking about one of the many things that my dad said to me and taught me, which is about the intergenerationality of healing. And I think we were talking about something relatively mundane, like I struggle to ask people for help. He struggles to ask people for help. My grandfather struggled to ask, you know, like (laughs) we have a lot of, and obviously there's systemic reasons why like all these black people would have struggled (laughs) struggled (laughs) um, across generations who Mm -hmm. all happen to, you know, be structured by similar colonial systems. Um, And what my dad said was, you know, it's so great that you're working on that because when you heal it, you heal it for all of us. Mm. And I I believe that, you know, I, I believe that the fact that my ancestors have suffered and that people have been suffering due to systems of oppression for multiple generations, it it doesn't just mean that I have to repeat those experiences, although there is repetition and there are patterns in, in the way that that manifests and has manifested in my life. But it also means that when I heal around those things, and when we heal around those things, it's, it reverberates in both directions. Mm. I think we often think about the fact that what we do is going to make it better for the future, and yes, <laughs> and it also reverberates the other way, mm-hmm. you know, and we know that because, I mean, I already have the experience of seeing people in younger generations than me living different possibilities than I have, and it heals something like nothing else could heal it. Mm. You know, like there's, there's something about the yes. intergenerational scale yeah. of healing that means that, yes, you know, the pain that Harriet Tubman experienced, it, it can't be undone, you know, like that violent head trauma that she experienced as an enslaved person, as an enslaved young person, 
it can't be undone. And it opened a portal, you know, mm-hmm. for her in, in terms of her, um, how it expanded her vision way beyond the linear. And she actually understood it was connected to what could happen now. Like she actually, she actually um, drew on that as power at that moment. Mm-hmm. And what was she drawing on? Somebody right now. Exactly. <laughs> ah! Our actual freedom. Like our <laughs> actual freedom right. in this moment is what she was drawing on. Holy shit. And we're drawing on her. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's just, you know, it's it really is infinite. Um, so the, the writing. Intergenerational intimacy. Yes. It's intergenerational yeah. intimacy. And it's, a, it's an intergenerational scale of existence, you know. Well, and one of the things I appreciate about what you're saying is that it also, it also in some ways challenges, I think, one of the frames that we often hear around historical trauma and intergenerational trauma is that it's accumulative harm Mm -hmm. and which um is true for sure and that framing is the framing of that we're carrying this these sort of scales and scales and layers and layers and layers of burden and I think the way you're framing this is really sort of in a way disrupting the idea that 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 we have this burden we can't put down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, more the reason to put that burden down. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's like, how, like, for me, as a workaholic in recovery, it's like, how much forced labor? You know what I'm saying? Like, Ooh. how many people yeah. believed they were going to die if they didn't do this amount of labor and were more right than I am because, like, people were training, you know, right. weapons on them? How, how much better reason to understand my freedom, mm-hmm. you know, like it's mm-hmm. about time. Like for me, when, when I envision my ancestors looking at me overworking myself voluntarily because I work for myself. So that means I'm, <laughs> I'm the overseer overseeing my overwork right. for myself. <laughs> They're looking at me like, right. what? Stop it. After all of this, <laughs> after all of this, you know, like you, you really, you really couldn't be free yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I just, <laughs> that's, I mean, I know, I know it's. Yeah. I love that. Cause I love that idea that it's like, Oh, just because you achieve freedom doesn't mean you know how to be mm-hmm. free. And I think that shows up for so many of us. That's like, I achieve freedom. And, but the only way I know how to value mm-hmm. myself is through this capitalist lens that is working all the time. And working beyond any financial need even or working in ways that ensure that the financial, you know, the thing that we're longing for is always just Mm -hmm. out of reach. Um, And it is so interesting. I mean, like every time I take a day off, (laughs) I, I really have to work on like, I feel so lazy. I feel lazy and like a horrible person for being still. I have to like generate that stillness in myself and like work hard to get to a place where I feel okay doing Mm -hmm. it. You know, even though I recognize it as, you know, over time, this is something that my system needs on an ancestral level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Alma Levon Rice says naps are reparations, right? <laughs> and I just, mm. I love that. And she, wow. she says it in the context of also accessing our dreams, you know, as a as powerful intergenerational technology. 
that obviously Harriet Tubman was accessing. Um, but yeah, like that that's reparations is, um, is a revolutionary way to think about it. So yeah, absolutely. So I love that frame also in the school of reclaiming my time. Um, like very quite literally, like the more of it I spend actually sleeping, I feel very (laughs) radical about that. And I also think that love, like the time that we get to spend in love, um, like being loved as black people and loving each other and, and being able to like cultivate, generate love in our hearts for the people around us also feels like such a radical reclamation um, and such a radical reframe of what it means to be black in the U.S. Um, it still feels relatively recent that black love was legal mm-hmm. and <laughs> that you could um, fall in love and stay in love. And so you and Julia are such an incredible model of love Um you know, and I don't know if that's super intentional or not, but but it's such an incredible love story that y'all share um, and feels like a love practice, like a radical love practice that you're in. Um, so I would just love to hear a little bit about what that kind of love has taught you about survival um, and what do you think it could teach others? Oh, wow. Oh, I'm blushing. Um, <laughs> that's so in love. Um, that, that's really beautiful to say. And yeah, I do think that we're in a love practice. Um, and that practicing love is like the most worthwhile thing to practice at. And, mm. um, yeah, it's taught me, I mean, being profoundly loved has taught me I feel like it's taught me everything that I now know, you know, like, I don't know if I could have been sure that I, that I knew that I really knew anything. I mean, that, that's, that's deep to even say in this moment, but I think Uh, that it's given me permission to, to love myself and trust myself at a deeper level. I think that's what that means, you know, that, that I trust what I know in a way that, um, grows, you know, it grows, it grows every day. It, um, it's interesting because, Julia and I are in an intentional love practice with each other, but it also expands. You know, it's it's a way of like reclaiming the feeling of being loved by my parents, reclaiming the love of my siblings, mm-hmm. reclaiming the love of everybody who's ever loved me, you know. And I, I think that it's I haven't actually thought about this until right now that I'm that I'm saying it, but it's incredible how I have um protected myself from love not believed in the love that I've like already received Mm. that has like literally been showered upon me because I have received a lot of love in this life already um that the depth and a daily practice of trusting love actually opens me to to keep feeling all the love that I had deflected you know um Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's one of the major, that's one of the major gifts. And then it's, it's also, also understanding that love is a practice is profound. I mean, it's, it's empowering because it's not like, well, maybe love will be here or it won't. (laughs) Hope it is. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That's not very empowering because like, what if it's not, right? Love just rides by on a horse and scoops you up if you're lucky. Right. Like if I'm lucky, right? 
gives you side like, eye no, leaves. Right. I mean, and Audrey Lord writes about this, right? When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are uh, alone, we're afraid love will never return, right? Like that. There, there's all of that. Well, and that actually does feel like such an incredible survival skill, right? Like I, I think this idea of like loving ourselves and then trusting love and being able to actually receive it from others and to really learn in our systems like oh this is what it feels like to choose to put love out and to choose to let love in um and this is what it feels like when I meet someone who's able to let love in and someone who's not and um and then, you know, when I think about Octavia Butler's parables or, you know, just being on the run or being like, okay, we need to survive, um, you know, this this moment that just happened. And it's like, I want to be around people that may be strangers to me right now, um, but I want to be able to assess out, like, what is their capacity for loving um, and have that be part of, like, how I would decide if I was going to roll with a crew on my way to get to Autumn's land. <laughs> uh, but, you know, even, like... We are recording this, like, just, I know everybody knows where I'm going to go and I'll see you there, but I, we're recording this, like, a couple days after the solar eclipse, the total solar eclipse, and it was just so amazing to see, like, that to me felt like this massive outpouring of loving, practicing love um, and practicing generosity and, like, all these people standing around being like, I want you to see how amazing this is. I'm going to share my glasses with you. <laughs> like, you know, and that's kind of what love is in the world, too. It's just like, whoa, the world is kind of incredible if you look at it this way. Like, will you look at it this way with me? <laughs> you know? <laughs> that is beautiful. Yes. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is daily practices, daily reminders, daily, um, magic. Um, we're sitting here in your amazing home and I don't is this your desk right mm -hmm. here? So on your desk is this incredible photograph. And I'm wondering just in the spirit of obviously there's some meaning to this photograph being on your desk. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if you describe to us what who is in this photograph and um, why you have it so prominently displayed and what it means as a part of your daily practice to be looking at this photograph. Yes, speaking of time travel, so this is a photograph. It's a black and white photograph. It's of maybe like 25 uh, black women writers and editors, and it is at the 1988... Essence Women Writers Retreat. And right in the middle is Cheryl Green, who was the person who organized that incredible retreat. And then she's surrounded by like Octavia Butler and Lucille Clifton and Sonia Sanchez and Tony Capenbara and Barbara Smith and uh, Elaine Brown and Ntozaki Shange, Tulani mm. Davis. I mean, I, I can't even actually name all the people um, because it will take, it will be like a whole other podcast. But. Um, <laughs> 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 and it's it's actually Cheryl's picture. So so it's Cheryl's picture in Cheryl's frame that Cheryl had in her office. So Cheryl, um, who was executive editor at Essence for many years, uh, was a mentor of mine, and she um, really really a mothering figure and uh, just such an important person in my life. 
and um, honored to also have been her literary executor and her papers are at Emory University. Everybody should check them out if you want to know anything about like basically any black cultural movement that has existed within Mm. the last (laughs) eight decades. Um, Check out Cheryl Green. Um, But so I have Cheryl, who's a mentor to me personally, and then all of these other women who are black women writers and activists who have inspired me and made me possible with their work. I'm they're looking at me. I understand them to be looking at me Mm. and I'm looking at them as I do my work. So it's, it is, um, it is a physical, it's just a physical representation of what is true. You know, like it, I'm never doing anything outside of the context of, this movement, of course, it's not only the women who were at that retreat that are part of that movement, of course, right? And I've named many, many women who were not at that retreat during this conversation. But the yeah. fact that it's a, it's a group of them and it's a collective is very important to me. Mm-hmm. The fact that um, they are like, they have just had like the most amazing beach weekend of Black women writer awesomeness, like in the Bahamas. Um, is important also you know like yeah that radiance and pleasure and love and their support for each other you know is important too because I mean we're in my office right now but usually I'm just in here you know and it's the I'm doing the individual things like when I'm sitting in the office I'm doing the things that could feel individual they're not really individual Mm. but to remember that it's like I'm surrounded by black women writers at all times, even right now when I'm sitting at my computer, possibly just responding to emails. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I better respond to these emails like somebody who understands that there that there has been a black women's writing revolution and a black feminist movement. You know? <laughs> yes. Raising the bar on email response and auto replies for and that matter. Replies. <laughs> That's why I got to have the auto reply because I got to respond to the emails like... You know, as part of as part of this legacy, <laughs> just like you are writing to someone at whom Lucille Clifton is looking right now. So. Uh, I love that as a practice. Yeah, that's incredible. And thank you for being willing to share that practice mm-hmm. with us. Um, so, if people want to learn more about your work, where should they go? Ooh. And can you mention a little bit about the next? book project that emerged from the evidence story yes um in that answer yes 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 (laughs) also say what evidence story is just because not everyone has read the thing that they should have read before they started listening to this podcast (laughs) pause the podcast right now um so I was so honored to be included with both of you and with um, you and Walida's leadership, Adrian, in Octavia's Brood, science fiction stories from social justice movements. And um, the story that I wrote is called Evidence, and it really is just a manifestation of all the time travel we've been talking about this whole time. And um, the seed of it was actually a letter Julia and I celebrated our anniversary by designing a workshop for for ourselves and each other to try to like unlearn capitalism this is like this is like ridiculous romantic i feel like we sound like a parody of ourselves sometimes but um but that's what we were doing and so we wrote 
we each wrote letters from our from this from ourselves post capitalism to our current selves oh. as part of that process. And that and that was that letter is actually in the in the book along with my actual email address, which is not not a thing I would do again. Mm. <laughs> oh, but, honey. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't even think about it. But um, but it's okay because it's nonlinear and I have autoresponders. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the story is um, really looks at a future, a future that's free from sexual and gendered violence and um, robustly, like what would a young person, a 12-year-old, describing that say and then what would that person what would that person's questions be and research questions be and what would their creativity look like if they lived in a world that was completely free from sexual violence and they were trying to see like how like how Barbara Smith looked to Harriet Tubman like how I look to Barbara Smith and Harriet Tubman she was looking for who do I whose energy am I drawing on in the freedom I experience now and so she looked to me, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> because I was writing the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> that perspective of somebody who's trying to understand a time profoundly different than the time that they live in, you know, like a time that in some ways had, has ended, but also a time that they are part of the legacy of, is, is what I think about every day, right? Like that's why I have these women staring at me at my desk, right? Like I, I'm thinking about okay, I don't live in the time that they lived. I can't be part of the organizations that they founded. And, you know, and many of them have transcended and become ancestors. And yet, in this moment, I am part of the world that they lived in. What does it mean to, to, um, to look back at that? And so M Archive, After the End of the World, which is my next book that is coming out via Duke University Press, is... From that perspective, it's a it's a, po- a post-apocalyptic perspective, and it's as if somebody was trying to archive the evidence of our current apocalypse. And it's you know there's some there's some like choose your own adventure ways of reading it that people could do. There are many ways of reading it that people could do, but it it is. Um, it's like what happens, right? Is it is it a profound evolution? Mm-hmm. Is it total destruction? You know, like what? What is it? And um, how would somebody after it understand it? And what would it mean to be to be looking at that evidence? So, so yeah, that that's that's what it is. I was thinking about today. I was like listening to somebody reading a Tony K. Bambara excerpt from the Salt Eaters Out Loud while I was cooking. I like to like listen to black feminist literature even when I'm cooking like whatever I'm doing so um and I was just thinking about how deeply um archive after the end of the world is informed by Tony K. Bambara's work you know Mm -hmm. and and the way that she thinks about scale the way that she absolutely in the salt eaters one of the reasons that that book is so incredible and also one of the reasons that, that a lot of people find that book very difficult is because the people in that novel are connected to other people across time and space in profound ways that are nonlinear. I mean, it's it's a nonlinear novel. Um, I wouldn't say M Archive is a, is even a novel. It's that nonlinear. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> um, right, right, right. But it's right. it's it's actually 
it's actually like if you were looking at these material artifacts and helping to sort them and they're somewhat sorted, but like you're, you're, um, you're putting them in order, potentially you're evaluating them. Um, yeah, it totally felt like that. Like the story is floating up between the lines of these pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, um, so it's interactive in that way. To me, it's like a book version of the types of experiences, workshops, ceremonies that I like to facilitate. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that really invites everyone in and, um, and also it's very much generated out of deep intimacy, speaking of intergenerational intimacy, intimacy with the work of incredible black feminist, transnational black feminist theorist, M. Jackie Alexander. She has a book called Pedagogies of Crossing, where she also reimagines the apocalypse. Maybe she could be on this podcast one day. Um, that would be amazing. And she, um, <laughs> she really just like completely reimagines the middle passage and writes about how we're always in the moment of crossing, like mm. just trying to communicate with each other uh-huh. or just like moving through the day. Like we're, we're in crossing, you know, and we're moving energy. And that is, um, it's connected to that moment in a way that is, um, is sacred. And so that, um, I actually generated my writing prompts to create M archive after the end of the world from a lot of her questions and a lot of the images that she, she has in that book. And in that book, she is thinking about the feminist movement and its own apocalypses. She is thinking about what does it mean 20 years after this bridge called my back Hmm. that we still have bridges that we haven't crossed between each other, you know, like what does, what does that mean? You know? And so when I, when I, when I looked at those questions, it took me to like a post-apocalyptic future, right? Like when I looked at those questions, it was like, whoa, you know, it really took me to a place where it's like, what beyond the definition that we have right now of the human, what are our relationships? How are we related Mm -hmm. beyond what we even understand the species to be right now? Mm -hmm. How are we related beyond what we understand our relationship, a dominant relationship to be to the planet? Like what, what if our relationships had to cross over that? How would we make sense of them? That's beautiful. Wow. I love that. I can't wait to read that. When's it coming out? <laughs> <laughs> it's available for pre-order right now. Really? Really. And supposedly <laughs> the page proofs are coming like next week. So yeah, it's hey. it's on its way. Um, wow. Yeah. And thank you. And thank you, Adrian, for your support and being an early reader of it and for you know making a space for evidence to exist as a short story and then like bloom and grow in the ways that it has and well you know it feels like so full circle here because autumn is such an important influencer of my obsession with octavia butler like autumn was you know like i had read her but i feel like autumn was one of the first ones to start diving in and be like there's scholarship to do here Mm -hmm. um and so it feels very full circle right now to be having this conversation with both of you. Um, oh, thank you, Adrian. Non-linearity of time, like we've always been moving towards this conversation. Yes. So. Yeah, we we're, we've we've always it. been in this moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening to our pilot season of How to Survive the End of the World. 
Thank you to everyone who took the time to write up reviews, uh, love notes that we received. Um, and thank you for everyone who took the time to rate the show. Um, all of that really helps us understand how this is landing with y'all. Thank you to everyone who became a patron and invested in the show and in us being able to continue putting it out. And just to everyone who shared the link with others, who sent it, who forwarded it, who knew that they wanted to share it and share their own vulnerability layered on with what we were putting out there. Um, Thanks for all the feedback and letting us know what you absolutely love about the show and how to make it more accessible. All of this um, is going to shape what we want to do next. And Oh, also, thanks for letting us know our voices are really different. (laughs) That was really good to learn. Um, through feedback. So we're definitely coming back with another season and we'll be back in February of 2018. And some highlights from the next season, um, we're going to be talking about hardcore, tangible apocalypse survival skills and what we need to be practicing now in order to be ready for whatever comes. Um, And security culture and movement sacrifice and what we do with the reality that some of our folks are actually being killed and taken out and um, locked up in the in the name of this work that we're doing and how do we orient around that how do we prepare for that Um, we want to talk about interventions who gets to make them um, who needs them Um, sanctuary cities and sanctuary spaces raising children to survive the unknown love and relationship and we also want to continue with some interviews so two that we know are happening for sure and we're very excited about Um, one is Toshi Reagan who is putting out the parable of the sower as an opera and has been developing it as a truly emergent um, process that's unfolding in front of the audience over the past few years in locations as divergent as as North Carolina, Durham, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Abu Dhabi, um, and New York City. And we want to learn from Toshi and with Toshi what what's, she's learning in that journey. And then we'll also be talking with Chani Nicholas, um, the astrologer who has been just loving up on and nourishing and guiding those of us working on social and environmental justice um, for the past few years. So Chani, Toshi, Apocalypse, Survival, Security, it's all coming your way in 2018. Um, So thank you again a million times over for loving on this show and for loving us and for bringing yourselves every day into this world and looking ahead and looking at the horizon and saying, we're going to keep going and we're going to figure this out together. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can also make a sustaining donation through Patreon by visiting our page, patreon.com slash end of the world show. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by our beloved Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes to us from Blue Dot Sessions and Tunde Alaniran. <laughs>